Nancy Richards. Well, hi there and welcome. It is indeed SAFM Literature, the show about words and writing and books and reading. And uh, what's to have been about youth today on the brink of Youth Day coming up on Tuesday? So what we had in mind was youth amongst many other things. But uh, as you know, uh, absolutely that we're going to be crossing back to the African Union, the opening thereof. So we're going to carry on with the show until such time as they're ready. So I'm not going to give you the whole menu, but uh, I think what we're going to do is start at the beginning and then see how we go. So first on our list is a hero. It's a, well, kind of an anti-hero, perhaps. It's Eugene de Kock, assassin for the state. Not going to be talking to the man himself, but the woman who spent three years of her life researching his story in the process making sense of herself as an, uh, as an Afrikaner. She's Anna-Marie Janssen, and we have her in our Johannesburg studio. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll talk to her now. This power swept across the country. This power fought against a language, Africa. A courageous and painful event. The police were shooting students. Just painful, just not easy. It created a unique identity and bringing new meaning to a hope for tomorrow. We have to take our country by our own hands and start developing it ourselves. Tune into our TV and radio stations on June 16 for the commemoration events. SAPC News. SABC Sport will complete your public holiday celebrations on the 16th of June 2015 with football action. Tune in to SABC One or your favorite SABC radio station when Bafana Bafana meets for an international friendly against the Black Panthers of Angola. Catch all the action at 3 p.m. live from Cape Town Stadium. SABC Sport, the love of the game. to SFM Literature, at least you are now. Um, we will be crossing to the opening of the African Union, so do stay tuned right here to SFM. Well, our hero, or as I say, rather anti-hero book today is called Eugene de Kock, Assassin for the State. It's published by Tafelberg. And its author, Anna-Marie Janssen, has spent the last three years getting under the skin of this man, sentenced back in 1996, you might remember, to two life imprisonments and an additional 212 years, dubbed by the media Primeval, who would forget that, uh, that handle. Well, January this year, he was granted parole by Justice Minister Michael Masuta. So what of his future, but equally, what of his past? Well, Anna-Marie has uh, occupied herself with Eugene de Kock's past big time over the last few years, and she's in our Joburg studio. Hi, Anna-Marie. Hello, Nancy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, just just give us his status, his current status at the moment, because he was granted parole in January. What's the situation? All right. His parole takes place in four sections. Uh, He's currently still in the first six months. He, the Department of the Correctional Services are looking after him very well. He's being assisted by them in reintegrating into society slowly. He is also still involved with um, helping the missing persons task team of the NPA. He's very much committed to that as well. It's nice that they're looking after him nicely. I'm just thinking two life sentences, 212 years um, for heaven only knows how many crimes. I think it was 89, yes. the last tally. Um, you know, what happened to all that? Is it, is it on good behavior? Well, he were, the charges against him was criminal charges. 
not uh, he wasn't uh, um, sentenced. Uh, he, he was not a political prisoner, so he has complied with all parole conditions, and you know that's the basis that he was that uh, that Minister Masuta um, let him go. Let's get let's get stuck into your um, I want to call it an obsession with him. I think it was by chance that you got to meet him. Just explain how you got to meet him. It, but you seem to know very little about him when you first met him, but somehow it piqued your interest in, in a major scale. Just explain the beginnings. Nancy, that's absolutely right. Um, I got the opportunity to uh, visit Eugene de Kock about four years ago. Initially, I just wanted to have a prison visit. I was busy working on my first novel, the Afrikaans novel, Glipstroom, and I wanted to incorporate that, incorporate that in the storyline. I didn't really um, anticipate meeting this person, and only afterwards, the discrepancies between a human being sitting in front of you, you know, charming, intelligent, having a good conversation, and the media image of prime evil, you know, the two just, it just didn't uh, fit. Hmm. A good conversation. That's interesting because what, actually what you say in the book is when you first met him, he had this stream of, of one-sided conversation. He just talked and talked and talked and talked. I mean, I could feel it as you wrote it. <laughs> Was it sort of nervous energy? What is it, is it that he um, doesn't have the opportunity to talk to people so often? Yes, I think it's a combination of a few things. Um, Remember, they only have four visits per month of an hour each, so I think they are fairly starved for com- for uh, conversationalists. And then also, as you say, it's just so much uh, pent-up energy uh, that gets released in such a session, that um, and so many stories that they want to tell and retell. Was he surprised when you? I mean, how long did it take you after that first visit to decide that actually you were going to spend some time researching him? I would say almost almost a year and then he slowly started introducing me to some of his former colleagues and that actually uh, accelerated the whole um, the whole the research um, through for, uh, particularly Larry Hanton um, I got to meet some of the flock class members uh, quite a few of the old uh, Kufut of his Kufut um, uh, ex-policemen uh, uh, colleagues of Eugene and also people like Brigadier Henny Haymans through Henny Haymans I met some of the generals so I had a fairly good exposure to uh, all the levels of uh, uh, policing mm. in the SAP. So did you put your cards on the table because you say describe that there was a turning point in your conversations when he said to the effect enough about me now you talk did you say okay this is what I want to do and was he was he with you was he flattered was he did he trust you uh, Eugene doesn't trust anybody easily mm, uh, sure. it just it was there's a there's a, a trust relationship has had to develop and that took, I would say, the best part of maybe two years. And then he started slowly introducing me and uh, putting, giving me his documents, uh, the, the, the um, diaries, etc., etc. It wasn't just his his working life, uh, really, that you started looking into. It was his, his his childhood. You spoke at length to his brother, family members. You went right back to the beginning. I mean, there are these black and white photographs of him in his... And his little Afrikaans boy shorts, mm-hmm. you know, you really went very thoroughly into his whole story. Uh, it, it actually started out as a photobiography because I just okay. felt that the photos um, tell a story by themselves. And then it developed into a fully fledged book. 
it seems just going back to the issue of you not really knowing very much about him uh, you know it was one of those sort of things that happened a long time ago the TRC etc etc but it seemed to have opened up a whole area for you not just about him but a whole area of Africanness, if you like or Africanism that you hadn't really explored in yourself Yes, I had a fairly privileged upbringing, Nancy, and uh, we were quite sheltered from what happened. The media, as you well remember, was up to 89, was muzzled by the apartheid government. And only now, in hindsight, I could take a good hard look at the past and I could really face it and be very honest about it, about how I experienced it. Um, And that to me was a very important thing to do. Starting at the beginning with his childhood, because a person a person grows and develops, you know, from their yes. foundations, and his foundations were were solid but difficult. Uh, tell us a little bit about his family. Solid but difficult, yes, and mm. I think that was the story of a lot of Afrikaner boys. While most of the men that I've been doing interviews and uh, conversations with, um, with a, you know, the typical situation of the patriarch. Um, almost uh, seeing the woman and the children as his uh, possessions possessions Mm. and very strict upbringing not only uh, at at home but also at school and then from there to the first the army and then the police so it was just uh, almost a uh, uh, how can I put it a strict unbending upbringing Mm. Mm. Did that reflect in his childhood? I mean, was he was he angry? Was he, uh, you know, I want to say, where did this violent or this sort of apparent disregard for human life, where did it come from? I think the South African. You must remember that they never did that. The uh, a lot of the policemen in the South African police, like Eugene, who went who first went to Rhodesia and then to Kufut and then came back. Um, they were never normal policemen. They didn't do ordinary policing. They were what they called military, uh, militarized policemen. And in that sense, they were in war situations. And a war situation cannot compare with anything in normal society. Other rules, there are other rules there, that nothing is normal there. And violence is part and parcel of it. Yes, I suppose so. Um, there's lots of parts and parcels. I mean, he very nearly never became a soldier because of his eyesight. That seemed, he, you know, it made him vulnerable, didn't it? Yes, and also his speech deficiency. Mm. Which, which sort of, as in, you imply, may have been as a result of this sort of rather heavy, heavy-handed father of his. It could be also he was left-handed and forced to write to, to be to use his right hand at school. You know, so there are various factors I think that influenced that. And Marie, I suppose the question really is, and I'm thinking that you know you followed in the footsteps of, of Jan, Jan Turner, who went to see him as well. Mm. It seems that you like him. Um, you, you become the, the trust developed between you. Tell, tell us about your feelings as they developed um, towards him. It's also a difficult question because the Mm. subject matter was not uh, easy to work with always, especially as we came to the, as I had to work with the flock plus, with the murders and the the violence and the aggression. Um, I have to say that it, uh, yes, it leaves a mark. But um, 
On the whole, Eugene is a very personable uh, human being and one can have very good conversations with him. Um, Matthew Marsh and Noma Dumazweni, who played the roles of Pumla Gabodo, Manigizela and Eugene in the play A Human Being Died That Night, they went to, with me to the prison to visit him. Mm. And it was a wonderful visit because he's, um, he's, he's, a, he's, he's got a, an inquiring mind and a Quick, he's quick-witted, so the conversations always flow, and I think most people would enjoy uh, spending some time with him yeah. and talking about whatever. I wonder if most people would forgive him, however. I, you know, I don't want to sort of put words into your mouth, but you know, did you get any sort of sense of remorse? It's one thing that he was a very easy conversationalist, personable. Nonetheless, what he did was what he did, or... It, it may be that he uh, sort of cu- has kind of taken the fall for a lot of people. I think that's his feeling. Is that yours too? Yes, I think the apartheid government definitely let, uh, use him as a scapegoat. But also, uh, in a more personal sense, my experience, which I, I can only speak from my own experience, mm-hmm. I, did re- I did experience that he, that he really felt remorse. And that is why he also wants to continue helping the uh, NPA with the missing persons task team. And I think, yes, 20 years is a long time to reflect. Yes, it certainly is. Um, and you've done, in the last three years, you've done a lot of reflecting too about what all this means to you as, as somebody with an, an Africana background of, yourself, of your own. What does, it, what does it make you feel, having gone through all this? It makes me feel that... You know, wait, let me answer it in this way. Um, I was at the uh, the gathering of the Daily Mavericks, the Daily Mavericks in, uh, initiative on Thursday in Midrand, and Martin Davies said a, quite a profound thing to me. He said, um, South Africa can only, w- will never be able to compete internationally if we are internally divided. And only by looking at stories and talking to each other and engaging with one another can one grow to a better understanding and that's actually what happened to me I got exposed to a lot of people different walks of life different professions all with different points of view on Eugene de Kock you know to be more specific and it really opened up doors in my mind so it's opened up a whole new area for you is that your intention with the book did you want it to work for other people in a similar way? I hope that it would stimulate conversation because I think that's what we need in South Africa is discourse discourse and conversation. Um, If that can happen, then, uh, you know, it would make me happy. What would make him happy? There's a very lyrical piece passage at the end um, where he talks about, you know, what life will be like if I get out. I want to live simply and quietly and with as much dignity as possible. And he goes on at length about bird watching and, and you know, a nice cup of coffee and so on and so forth. Do you, is he deserving of all that? You know, I cannot answer that question mm. um, for him. But if you ask me, I would say that, you know, Eugene has a choice again he has a chance to make a choice again and I hope he makes the right one and just you know have a a, a dignified normal life I hope he chooses that also at the end are the evidence of the prolific research and notes uh, that you did amongst all the people that many people that you spoke to did you speak to any of his as it were victims families the person that I spoke to was Candace Mama 
Um, she was the daughter of Masilu Mama, who uh, died in the Nelsprite, um the shootout at, in, in, with the Nelsprite accident. And um, what a wonderful young woman. She's 23 years old. She is um, such a warm, uh, interesting person. I had wonderful conversations with her, and I have huge respect for the work that she's been doing. And do you have respect for Eugene de Kock? I do not agree with the things that he have, has done. Mm. Uh, I do think we all have choices, and you know. But at the same time, if you are not, you have to be unjudgmental. I had to be totally unjudgmental, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to write the book. So whatever people's personal choices are, you know, that's quite beyond yeah. each of us. Well, it was your choice to write the book, and it sounds like it was a real life changer for you. You, you mentioned the book that you were working on previously. Has this, has this changed your direction in life? I think so. It just makes me... I'm so excited about life, Nancy. There are so many things that can still be done. Um, there are so, so many stories still that to, to be told. Um, yes, it really excites me. Well, certainly if you approach anything else with the thoroughness with which you've done this, certainly yeah. it, will, it will be good. Very best of luck, and I hope that you've now, as it were, got him out of your system. But <laughs> not entirely, because you've been buying things for him to sort of make him comfortable when he comes out. Well, we are actually... Jeremy Gordon wrote the first book about Eugene in 1998, and at the moment, uh, Jeremy and I, have to, we are busy, and with Tafelberg, uh, we are looking at a... Um, our, uh, of. Uh, rewriting the book almost uh, a long night's damage and with a much more political uh, more hardcore, more political mm -hmm. and uh, that's quite an interesting project that's lying ahead So certainly it's not out of your system <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much Very well done Thanks Thank for you time. so much Nancy, I Pleasure. appreciate Bye bye Anna-Marie Janssen, she's the uh, author of Eugene de Kock, Assassin for the State and is published by Tafelberg and uh, do stay with us because in a minute we're going to be talking about youth writing SAFM Literature Well, memories certainly do live on in this country, do they not? And books help us uh, make sense of our memories and understand memories, other people's and our own memories. So memories, I suppose, are youth day around the corner. And certainly as the African Union is just about to open, we, we're going to keep going with the programme um, so we'll keep you posted with what we have, uh, what's up right now. In fact, that's what we're going to do. Our book club, this is around about the time when we talk to somebody who's involved in books one way or another. And don't forget, if you're involved with books, maybe you'd like to share your story on the program, you can do that. Pop us a mail, books at safm.co.za, books at safm.co.za. Otherwise, you can send me a mail, richardsn at safm.co.za. Well, our book club member today, she's a writer, she's a word practitioner. She's the author of a children's book, a biography of her father, who is the well-known ceramicist Sias Bosch, uh, of a memoir about her journey through divorce. And now she's into youth novels, so she certainly tried her hand at a number of different things. And uh, in fact, she was the gold winner in the English category of the 2013 Sam Lamb Prize for Youth Literature, uh, also winner of the NER Prize for the Best Youth Novel at the 2015 Media 24 Books Literary Prizes just last week. So here she is to tell us all about it. She's uh, Andre Eva Bosch. Hi, Andre. Nice to have you with us. Lovely to be here. Good, and congratulations on all your awards, which seem to be coming in thick and fast. Thank you very much. Good. I was very surprised. Being a first-time youth book writer and up against people on the shortlist who are so experienced and qualified, I was... 
very pleasantly surprised. You know, the thing about youth writing is a bit like children's books. One sort of thinks, oh, well, that's where you start, and then you move on to something more sort of uh, more substantial. But youth writing seems to me, unlike children's books, youth writing seems to me to be quite a difficult genre because who knows what's in the head of a young person. Why did you take this route? I didn't consciously take this route. Okay. It, it happened. I got a spark for the story quite by chance when I was invited to a film festival for high school learners and I saw a very short, very simple video narrating the story of a young girl who is a brilliant dancer until she gets raped and she gives up on her dreams. And then um, a mentor, a friend, comes onto the scene and helps her to carry on dreaming. And not knowing that a spark for a story was created right there. I went home and it was in my subconscious as these things happen. When I decided a few months later to write a a book for young adults, that spark became the fire and Nandi's story was born. Okay. So, yes, that movie, I think it was called Never Give Up. That's right. Yeah. It's amazing how rape can change a person, isn't it? It's kind of a shocking thing. I went just the other day to uh, uh, an exhibition of photographs. It was put together by Embrace Dignity. And there were photographs of a whole lot of young women who, one way or another, had turned to prostitution. But the effect that rape had had on their lives was just devastating. Tell us a little bit about the story. The story, in essence, is the story of one young woman with big dreams and who's well on her way to achieving her goals, who is in constant race. She constantly wrestles with the male patriarchal um, members in her vicinity, her father, and a group of boys called the Bad Boys of Kanye Mazan, a fictitious group. They don't exist. I made them up. And they have a skewed perception of women and where women fit in. And her father especially tries to sabotage her in every way possible. And um, so the big question is, will Nandi be able to achieve her dreams despite these severe obstacles, or will they crush her spirit? I wonder, though, did you, have to do, um, did you have to do quite a lot of getting into the head? Did you speak to any other young people to, to try and find out what would be in their minds? I, what I did is I went onto the internet and I, mm. and I, I, I saw quite a lot of material that, that helped me. But in essence, it was a wonderful book to write because it was as if Nandi absolutely came to sit in my study and speak to me. So it was a very intuitive process. And I didn't even do the research to find out what are the do's and don'ts of youth fiction writing. I just went on organically. And only afterwards I realized that luck was on my side or the muse was on my side and I seemed to have gotten it, got it right. Well, obviously it was meant to be. Maybe the spirit of Nandi really was with you there because I suppose one has to get the tone right. It would be interesting to find out if there are do's and don'ts about youth writing. So you would, you would need for the tone to be right, you know, not too, not too highbrow, not too slangy, not too this, not too that. Did you do any research afterwards? Afterwards, yes. And it seems that the most important thing is that the writer stays in the perspective of her teenage character. In other words... 
don't look through your eyes, look through her eyes or his eyes. And the other thing is absolutely ruthlessly edit out the, the adult voice that wants to, to creep in. Don't condescend because teenage readers are extremely thoughtful mm-hmm. and incisive readers. And, um, and keep a, 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 a optimism alive because teenagers look to literature for answers. And I think that this is such an incredibly exciting part of being a writer for the youth is that one can really make a difference. Yes, I suppose now more than ever, you know, given our rape statistics, given the issues that a lot of our young people are facing more than ever, if they're going to be looking for books, we need to make sure that it's there. But I do have to sort of come back to the issue of when a young person reads a book, do they spot a mile away that they're being given a message? I mean, you know, here's an issue, you're going to read about it. Or, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. One has to be very careful about not being and, Exactly. And, and to, to, to take an issue as a theme provides um, a lot of challenges for the writer because you don't want the issue to overshadow characterization. And that can easily happen. And um, young people are, so much information is thrown their way about these issues. You have to make sure, and I I hope I managed, that Nandi becomes, uh, draws them in, engages them. And that identification with with, with the um, uh, characters can take place. Not only is Nandi not in your age group, she's also not in your, as it were, cultural group. Were you quite conscious of being... Uh, an interloper of, of, of writing in an area that you don't know? Not really. I grew, I mean, I it's not a criticism. I'm just no, wondering how it's, 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 it's a very valid question and one that, that obviously has to be answered. And the truth is that I didn't feel that way. I grew up in Mapumalanga, where it's set and uh, in Kanyamazan, near Nelspreit. I, um, I've, I've visited Kanyamazan as, as when I was living there. And, for instance, Nandi's mum was very much based on a, a domestic worker who, I, who became an absolute angel in my life. Um, so, in a way, although, of course, I could never be arrogant enough to say that I understand the depth of Nandi and with the girls like her, I, I, I did my best. But you do understand what it's like to be a young woman, not only because you would have been one yourself, but you also have daughters. I raised two daughters as a single mum, and I think that gave me a lot of insight into the inner workings of a young girl. And and that's also one of the reasons why I brought love into it. And Nandi's wonderful boyfriend, 17-year-old Becca, uh, provides uh, for a love story which is very modern, very challenged, and survives obstacles. So um, young girls should be able to, to, to like that. I suppose the proof of the pudding, as it were, um, to coin a phrase, uh, would be to run it past young people. Have you, what, what sort of feedback have you had? I mean, your publishers obviously felt that you've got the right sort of tone of voice for a, for a youth novel. Has it been out there? What's, what's been the reception? It has been out there. The first reader was 13 years old, Zulu-speaking Lindiwe from Pretoria, and I don't know that the publisher sent her a copy. And Lindiwe's response made me breathe out 
because she said she couldn't believe that it wasn't Nandi who wrote the story herself. So, Nancy, um, I'm, I hope I've got it right. Yeah. So what does this mean? Does it now, having you know, written all sorts of other things, are you now a little bit hooked here? I mean, might, might we see Nandi again? Are you starting with something more? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I really believe that when one speaks too early about one's writing, you, you leak energy. And, but there are ideas forming um, at the moment, and we'll have to see what happens. You know, one of the things, I don't know if you were listening to a conversation I had with Anna-Marie Janssen about the Eugene de Kock story, uh, where very heavy patriarchal father was involved, and I think there's a sort of sense of patriarchy, too, in your book. It, it's certainly an issue that comes up. I think um, Nandi's father is also a little bit of a pa- patriarch. He's, he's a huge patriarch. Yeah. He's a misogynist. Did you, did you, yes, sort of, thank you for putting it into words. Did you feel that maybe... Although the book is for young people, perhaps there's there's room for it to to grow elsewhere, you know, be, be, sort of be of interest to other readers outside of that. Because I mean, you know, people learn from all sorts of areas, don't they? You know, youth books evidently are read more by adults than by young mm-hmm. people, which is interesting. I gave the book to um, a domestic worker who who who's, lives in Kabukweni, which is close to Kanyamazan. She has close ties with Kanyamazan. And I was absolutely touched by how she identified with Nandi's mother, who's probably uh, reflects thousands, millions of mothers in South Africa who single-handedly make absolutely sure that their children get good education. And I'm, I'm hoping that the very positive male characters in the book, for instance, Mr. Kumalo, Nandi's teacher, will inspire teachers to, to carry on because Mr. Kamalo manages to reach Nandi very deeply and to encourage her to, to reach for her dreams of studying law. Is it likely to be a set work? I, I don't know how these things work, but is it likely to be? Could it be? I hope so. That would be a dream come true for me mm. because I, I wrote the book with the passion and the energy that it should make a difference. And if it can be utilized in classrooms and get conversations going amongst girls and boys, I would be extremely happy. Happier still, I would imagine, if it were to be translated into some of our other uh, national languages. I mean, I don't know if you wrote it in English, Afrikaans. I wrote it in English. And... It would be wonderful it could, if it could be translated into indigenous languages. Yeah. Well, Andre, I have no doubt that uh, this has got you started on a whole area of youth writing, so very best of luck. I'm going to give out the details. It's published by NB Publishers. It's called Alive Again, and it's been written by Andre Eva Bosch, who has certainly turned her hand to young Nandi's story in a, in a very elegant way. Thank you for joining us, and very best of luck. Thank, Thank you, Nancy. Andre Eva Bosch talking there about her book Alive Again, as I say, published by NB Publishers. You're listening to SAFM Literature. Stay with us. We're going to decide what to do next. Africa is divided into different countries with different languages, different ethnicities, and different cultures. Yet we all belong to one Africa. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters from different countries on our continent and strive for a united Africa. Stop the xenophobic scourge. SAFM, let's have a conversation.
Well, next in our text feature here on SAFM Literature, more poetry. Interestingly, last week, you might remember, we spoke to Aria Salafranca about her anthology called Beyond Touch. Well, subsequent to that, I had an email from a listener who who queried what constituted poetry and what didn't. Well, my feeling is that its definition probably would be different for every different person you spoke to. But we're going to take another look at poetry today, because on the line we have a poet. He's also South African ambassador to Zimbabwe. He's Fusi Mavimbela, and he's he's put together an anthology of poetry called No Lullaby for My Country and Other Poems. And it's been a collection of poetry that he's been writing over many, many years. And we have him on the line, I think, all the way from Zimbabwe. Hi, Mr. Mavimbela, are you with us? Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you very much. It sounds like we have a good line, so nice to have you with us. Um, uh, no, no lullaby for my country. I think that that particular poem you wrote some time ago, is this a collection of poetry that has come over a period of time? Just, just give us the background. Well, I've been writing poetry since I was young, my high mm. school days. Uh, and uh, really I've got uh, a lot of poems lying around somewhere, but I just felt that I need to put these poems together in a book. Uh, some of these poems, a few, a few of these poems actually have been published with other po- poems from other people in, in, in other books. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is my own collection. It's laudable that you've kept them. I mean, you say you've been writing since since you were young, but I mean, no lullaby. You wrote back in 1989. Did you do you sort of file them all away in a big file, or have you got them all on your laptop, or how do you how do you keep them? No, well, <laughs> with new technology now, yeah, they are in my computer. Yeah. Uh, although I still have scraps of paper lying around, really. But I've really collected and put them together. No lullaby for my country, as you see, I I wrote it uh, some time back. Yeah. And really, this is, I think, uh, the essence of of this collection. Uh, because no lullaby for my country, I was saying to myself, you know, uh, the problems of this country, South Africa. If South Africa was a child that is crying, that is having problems, or that is, is sick somehow, you're not going to solve those those problems simply by singing a lullaby to the country. (laughs) There's much more work that will have to be done. Yeah, it's quite an epic poem. I was reading it. It's really quite... It's quite... Somebody describes your work as as astonishingly beautiful, I think. Yeah, astonishingly powerful, and certainly powerful it really is. Have you got the book with you? Yes, I do. Would you like to just read us perhaps a little bit of No Lullaby for My Country, maybe just the first uh, first page? Uh, You mean any poem? No, well, I think no, no, page 56, No Lullaby for My Country. Oh, that's that, that, that yeah. itself. Yeah. Okay. Uh, get there. Yes, No Lullaby for My Country. I wish I were an elephant. Sometimes I need a nose big as a trunk a memory huge as the firmament. It is only old mothers who possess the fathomless memory for bedtime stories. They tell them well. Good bedtime stories gobble the candle more greedily than a lingering flame. My grandmother said the ear of humanity is a sieve. It leaks. It is for so many reasons that we manufacture books. It leaks into the right ear out of the left one. 
Okay, we're going to stop it there because, as I say, it is, it's a long and epic poem. You know, I don't know if you heard me saying that I had a, an email from a listener who sort of questioned what a poem should be all about for you when you started writing. What was writing a poem all about? I've, I've, had, I've had many influences, really, in my style of writing. Um, I, I think today I will say that uh, my favorite poet is uh, Pablo Neruda. But over the years, even, in fact, if you look through my book, you'll see that the texture of the poems is not the same. So I, I get influence. I, I, I like to write, my, my poet is more like a prose. I like to tell a story. Like you had these uh, few stanzas that uh, I read here. It's more like telling a story. Uh, you know, other people will believe that a poem should be, uh, I mean, something that uh, ends, uh, with almost the same uh, intonation or whatever. Mm. But I believe uh, writing a... Me, me, for me, writing a poem is really telling a story. Most of, of the poems that I, I write is actually my journey through life. It reflects a lot about about my myself, about my family, about my experiences, the liberation struggle, travels around the world. So I, I'm telling that story really in this anthology. Were you... Um, an angry young man when you started to write what, did they come from a place of, of anger, frustration what, what was in your mind when you started writing when I started writing uh, really is when I became or I was beginning to be politically conscious it was those times when uh, we were reading uh, magazines like uh, the Sasso Newsletter South African Student Organization newsletter and we're getting exposed to the black consciousness uh, movement and the thinking it really opened a new way of thinking about the world about South Africa about about the struggle so in a way you can say that uh, perhaps at the time it there was there was some anger because there was frustration because it is a, it is at the time when I was beginning to be politically conscious mm-hmm. Did it help you? I'm just thinking about the issues that our young people have now. Uh, and I suppose if you were to read some of their poetry, those that are writing, the messages might be quite different. Did it help you to to articulate what it was that you were feeling and thinking? Oh, yes, it did. Uh, because I remember uh, my first poem that I ever wrote, I read it uh, in, a, in a conference of uh, South African Student Organization. So it, it helped really to articulate what one wanted to say, but also to articulate it in such a way that uh, the regime at the time would not necessarily uh, find a, a, a reason to actually attack you or arrest you and so on. But you still tell a story. If you tell it through a poem, you can argue and say, no, you didn't understand. That's not, that's not what I meant. So in, in a way, it was another way of expressing oneself. It also helped you, I think, when you travelled, because you were in New York. We've got a wandering troubadour in New York City. We've got another one from a taxi ride to Orlando, Florida. I think there's a a point when you were at Harvard. Does it help you you, in your sort of journey through life? Does it help you sort of put together how you're dealing with all those new experiences? 
let's let's look for instance at that poem uh, Harvard University. Uh, you know something happened at Harvard. I was on a speaking tour in America. I spoke in a number of uh, institutions, uh, uh, tertiary institutions, uh, universities. So I was invited to address students uh, about. Uh, the African National Congress and the, and the liberation struggle in South Africa. And uh, <laughs> firstly, one thing that that, that uh, uh, I was exposed to is the fact that I come from a different world altogether. I was coming from Africa, and now I was in America. And uh, the, the the program director kept on telling me, "No, we have to wait. We have to wait. Uh, we have to wait for students. Because students are finding hard to find parking space." at the university. To me it was a shock because he told me that almost every student here has got a car and there's a struggle about parking space and he said, you know, you've got a difficult task to come and tell people here about the liberation struggle. They do want to listen to you, but can you see they've got other priorities, the priority mm-hmm. of parking space, trying to find parking space for their car. Well, the, 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 the function started and I addressed the student. When I finished addressing the student, one uh, white student stood up uh, almost angry and, and said, you black South Africans, you know, uh, yeah, there are only two generations from the Stone Age. How do you think you can run the South African economy? <laughs> I mean, to me, that was a second shock <laughs> that anybody could be thinking like that. But that in itself, I mean, uh, was, was quite eye o- an eye-opener for me about uh, how different the world is. Indeed, that's really quite a shock. And I suppose that the world is different as you as you go on in your life. I suppose the world, your worldview changes, given your experience, the way you see things, perhaps very different. Um, and it's, it's uh, Professor Mongani Wally Siroti who actually says, in your book of poems, we'll see Mavin Berla looks over the shoulder at the fruits of history. Do you find that what you're writing now, what you're looking at now, you're seeing through very different eyes and maybe your poetry it's very different words as well. Oh yes, uh, definitely. Uh, I, I think it comes out in, the, in, the, in, in my in my poetry. For instance, if you look at the the poem um, uh, "The Phantom of Idologs," that is the second poem in the book. Yeah. That tells you because you know I grew up in the ANC and. Uh, we were all fascinated and interested in Marxism, uh, in Marx and uh, Lenin and communism and so on. Uh, we found it a very interesting way of looking at the world and the way perhaps of trying to solve the problems of the world. But that was before the fall of the Berlin Wall. That was before the collapse of socialism. Anyway, even at the time when socialism started collapsing, we had already seen witnesses in the whole idea. And that poem actually, it, it tells you that, <laughs> I mean, it starts by saying the Communist Manifesto itself lies broken like cheap porcelain on the rocks of social experiments of a departed century. And that Karl Marx was so eerily prophetic, and the chains of wake-up bondage chant with sweet fantasy, workers of the world unite and cast away the tutelage of the Chinese chain. That poem tells you the hope that was there uh, before the collapse of the Berlin Wall, before the collapse of socialism. And the fact that today, actually, they, we, at the time, we didn't question Marxism, we didn't question Marx. 
but the collapse of socialism and the collapse of the Berlin Wall made many of us begin to question these things and actually say, who actually has got the answers to the world? Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. Marx has failed, couldn't provide the answers of the world. Who dare think that uh, they've got all the answers to the challenges of the world? I suppose there are, as they say, a whole lot more questions than answers. Usi Mavimbela, thank you very much for your time. And I guess that poetry is about telling a story, but it's also about asking those questions, sometimes difficult questions. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy your ongoing journey with poetry. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks for it's my pleasure. Yeah. Fusi Mavimbela, who is both a poet and South African ambassador to Zimbabwe, and incidentally the book is called No Lullaby for My Country and Other Poems, and it's published by Reach Publishers. You listen to SFM Literature. Stay with us. And here on SFM Literature, we're moving things on a little bit because we're not quite sure when we're going to be crossing over to the African Union opening. So we just start our book two feature right now. And our book two feature, what we're going to do is speak to two young authors about balancing writing together with a day job. And they are Gonse Malope, who's a business analyst, also the author of a book called um, The Reality of Our Freedom, and also Kahiso Sitore, who's the author of a, he's a mining engineer, but he's also the author of a book called The Truth Not Lived. And we've got Kahiso in our Jobo studio. Hi there. Hi, Nancy. Thank how, you for the how, opportunity to have me. Well, it's an absolute <coughs> pleasure. Are you now living your truth? Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, uh, <coughs> I think over time I've always wanted to, uh, to be a writer uh, as a mining engineer. Uh, but I would say at one point in my life, um, I found myself living a life full of misery. And when I became curious to understand, you know, the cause of my unhappiness, um, I found that I had mistaken my vocation. And um, and that mainly because I, I was ignorant about, the, you know, my true vocation in the first place. And um, it was a vocation. Obviously, I followed a career of vocation that I uh, did not have strength for or which did not harmonize with my birth gift um, of writing. And I looked around and I saw I was in the only one who is actually going through this. A multitude of people are miserable in their chosen careers. And, uh, um, and also because they are in- ignorant about their true vocations. And uh, I think it's fortunate for some because they have discovered themselves, uh, but they haven't explored their true work. Or vocations, and some have explored them but have not developed them, and some have developed but have not exploited them. So it was all these kids, I mean, facts uh, brought together that uh, motivated me to put a book together uh, that would help humanity basically to prospect and eventually exploit their true purpose in life. Yeah. Hmm. I'm worried about your misery. (laughs) 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 How bad was it? Because you became a mining engineer because you were given a grant, uh, at least you were given a a bursary, and you trod that path and you went on while you were at school and then you did the internship and so on and so forth. I mean, how bad was it? Were were you conscious of the fact right through that whole process that this was not for you? Not quite. I come from a community which is uh, where mining is the major employer and what I knew predominantly was mining. And mm. I don't come from these schools which are well resourced and there's a career guardians and all that. Uh, so, you know, I grew up knowing, uh, or rather knowing mining mainly. And after I completed my metric and enrolled at the um, uh, institution of higher learning, um, studied mining there. But look, uh, 
it was just bad. I was discontent. I was unhappy. I was I was actually bored. But uh, you know, I rendered the opportunity to relinquish that faculty because of my background and. I rendered that opportunity almost impossible because of my background and the circumstances of where I come from. And I continued, I even, I mean, until I graduated, even after graduating, I started working, but there was no harmony, you know, um, between myself and, and the occupation or the faculty or the fraternity uh, itself. And, uh, you know, it was just difficult for me yeah. uh, to, to continue. But but luckily, I mean, I think the most important thing about life is that you would find yourself while doing something. So I didn't have to hide to find my gift of writing. I found it while I was working. And at least today has been able to assist me because in my book, um, I've brought together, you know, the mining science and theological reasoning together to explain how people can use that to yeah. find their purpose in life. So it, it's really helped me. Much as it was a bad thing, or rather, I could say a mistaken vocation for me, but somehow it has helped me. To, to well, indeed, yes. I was going to say, at least you've been able to use it, which yes. is in itself is a bit of a gift. And I imagine that there were people also telling you that you were jolly lucky, so just shut up and get on with it. I imagine that there was some, <laughs> there was some of that. Kathy, so we're going to we chat to you a little bit more after the news, hopefully. So do stay with us. Um, we'll be ch- ch- chatting to Kathiso Sitole, also going to be talking to Gonzi Malope, who is another person who has a day job, but is also a writer. So we'll find out a little bit more about all of that right after the news. But right now it is two o'clock here on SAFM, and it's time for the news with Zodwa McQuena. <laughs> 